Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have a very special guest who comes to us from the UK. His name is David Whelan. Last name is spelled W-H-E-L-A-N. And he's just published a book that I'm very interested in reading. I haven't done it yet. It's in paperback. The full title is Mind Games, The Assassination of John Lennon. And uh, it's just an important subject. I've been covering kind of on my show, the D-Hypno program on Free World FM, I'm covering some of these other cases, and I've gone over a lot of them, of these kind of uh, strange hypnotized people. I just, uh, it was last night, I actually read into the record the Sirhan Sirhan timeline. I was actually trying to finish that. It'll take me three parts, but I'll try to put that up. But it's a 50-page document that's kind of an open-source document about Sirhan Sirhan and how strange he was. And I think it kind of ties into some of this the story about uh, Mark Chapman and his kind of odd journey. And we can talk more about that. But I was just reading through the book. It's very well put together. And there's an introductory uh, quote from John Lennon. That I think it's important. And it's very timely, actually. And I'll read it here. Our society is run by insane people for insane objectives. I think we're being run by maniacs for maniacal ends. And I think I'm liable to be put away for expressing that. And that's John Lennon. And I think it's a very timely quote, but uh, I'm delighted to have David here. He just published a book yesterday, so uh, I'm really happy to have him. So David Whelan, welcome to the show. Hi, William. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard your name, I, we were talking in the pre-show. You were on Ed Opperman's show three times. I think I saw maybe more than that. You said you've been doing a lot of interviews in the UK and around the world. Maybe you can talk about your background and how you got interested in researching the assassination of John Lennon. Sure, thank you. Yeah, I'm um, a UK TV producer, uh, born in London, uh, brought up in North London. I don't know if you've ever been to the wonderful yeah, North London. I love London, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but Camden Town, you know, the Camden Town area around there. It's, a, it's a cool It's a cool part of London. It's There's a lot of music venues. I was very lucky to grow up there. It's a great culture there. It's slightly different now. Like most places, it's kind of lost its soul. It's got a little bit too corporate. But um, Camden Town was a great place to grow up. Uh, I was very lucky when I was 17, I, uh, I got a job, I got a traineeship at Thames Television, which is the biggest TV station in the UK at the time. Uh, and I, I was a, at 17, I was on a path to nowhere. So that, that lucky break was incredible for me. Uh, and that started a what's now been a 40 year career in television, which is ex extraordinary. Uh, I, I don't know where that time's gone. But um, so obviously, I saw a lot of changes in TV through the 80s and 90s and, and the noughties. And I would say not changes for the better. Uh, again, talking about Camden Town being corporate, TV's got too corporate in my opinion. Uh, I was saying to someone the other day actually how TV stations used to it back in the day in the 80s when I first started, there was no uh, legal uh, department. <laughs> you know, those lawyers just didn't exist. And, if, if you, and there was a lot of hard hitting documentaries we did in those days. And, um, you know, you just you just went with it and, and you know, be damned. You know, it's kind of broadcast and be damned kind of thing. Whereas now every single TV program that's made is, is just run through armies of lawyers who invariably are looking after their own skin. And if they think there's anything contentious, they yeah, they, they, they pull it. So so TV's in a bit of a bad place. Uh, I think these days, hopefully it will turn around and people will become a bit braver again and uh, less enthrall to the lawyers but um what basically happened with the lennon project is lockdown arrived um like a lot of people i thought it would last just a couple of weeks uh, and i've got to be honest the first couple of weeks i thought no, this is cool i could take a couple of weeks holiday 
Uh, I'm up for this. <laughs> the world's on pause, so I won't feel guilty about not working. So that was uh, initially a good thing for me. Uh, so the first couple of weeks, I'm just, you know, walking around, just enjoying the peace and quiet, to be honest. And it was, um, I was listening to a podcast, William. Um, uh, you might know it, actually, Black Ops Radio, which is, uh, yeah. you know, the, the sort of, I think, the, one of the best JFK ones out there. Leonard Sanek from Canada, brilliant, brilliant uh, podcast, been going for years. And I was listening to that, walking the dog in a field, uh, just listening to some kind of JFK stuff, because uh, I'm very interested in that case because of the Oliver Stone 91 film, which was a big moment for me. Uh, that was, I suppose, my, to call it a cliche, red pill moment. Um, so I was listening to that and I, I almost switched off, William. I almost switched off. And if I did, the last three years would have been very different, but I kept listening and uh, a man called Jim Eugenio, I'm sure you know, is a very famous mm-hmm. JFK researcher, did a letters section. Uh, and I almost said, right, I, I don't really want to hear the letters. And I almost switched off, but something kept me listening. And um, someone wrote a letter into Jim and Len asking whether um, they knew anything about John Lennon's assassination and whether they knew anything about the, uh, the doorman on the door at the night being a CIA operative and uh, and being a cuban uh, so my my ears pricked up and i thought okay cia cuban that's interesting <laughs> never heard that before uh because like a lot of people on the planet i would say 99 percent of the people on the planet i thought john lennon's assassination was a complete open and shut case classic lone nut turns up with a gun shoots john guy's crazy guy stayed there waiting for the cops to pick him up there's this kind of weird catching the ride thing where he got the book out uh that's it you know it's just another loan nut i should have known better actually whenever they whenever you hear that phrase you know something's wrong um so i i kind of went home and um i thought right okay i'll just do a little bit of digging here and just see what's what this cuban doorman's all about and allegedly a lot of people online were saying that this cuban doorman was um a, a kind of cia assassin who was looking after a a group that were going into Cuba after the Bear Pigs, uh, a kind of hardcore group of killers to clean up uh, in uh, in Cuba after the so-called successful Bear Pigs operation. And they were called Operation 40, sometimes called, sometimes called Brigade 2506. And the guy who was running it was a guy called Jose Sanginis Padermo. So and the guy at the door in the Dakota that night was called Jose Padermo. So initially, I kind of went with that, William. I thought, okay, well, that, that, that's, I'm sure people have done their research. I'm sure this is that, ba- you know, Dakota Bay of Pigs, uh, Dakota Jose Padermo is Bay of Pigs Jose Padermo. But then I started to dig further and further and further. And then things started to go a bit uh, strange, really, William. I started to realize that <laughs> what was odd about this whole case and this whole murder is there was no specific detail there was no it, it was very general there's loads of stuff done it loads of books loads of articles lots of documentaries and they all say just just for i'm sure all your listeners and viewers know exactly the story but i'll just quickly recap john and yoko come back from the studio they're returning to their home the dakota in new york uh yoko gets out of the limo first on the sidewalk she walks into a driveway which is like a small tunnel arch tunnel they're heading over to a vestibule door on the far right of the tunnel Yoko's 20 feet ahead of John. John gets out of a limo. He's following Yoko, heading towards this vestibule door on the far right, which leads upstairs and into the lobby of the Dakota. Um, Yoko, we don't quite know what Yoko does or did. We'll get into that slightly slightly later. 
But what we do, what we have been told is that a guy called Mark Chapman from Hawaii stepped out from the shadows by the sidewalk when John was about 20 feet away from Mark, when he was close to the um, vestibule door. Allegedly, according to Mark and, and the official narrative, Mark shot him with five, five bullets. It was a five bullet gun, five bullet, 38 revolver and four bullets, according to Mark, hit John in the back. John then staggered on and, and dropped dead in various different places. But what was interesting, William, is they never actually said exactly where John was where, when he was struck. And they and there was always these different descriptions about where John was. Was he in the doorman's booth? Was he in the vestibule? Was he on the stairs? Was he in the lobby? Was he in the front office? I've heard lots of different people describe him in different places where he was shot and where he ended up. So I thought this doesn't make sense. Um, you know, why? Why do we know? Why do we not know exactly where John was in that driveway when Mark Chapman allegedly shot him in the back? So my next kind of so that troubled me, and and, and that kind of pushed me on to take the research a step further. Right. So it's, there's a dispute about where he was, and Dakota was featured in Rosemary's Baby, so it's right there off of Central Park, very mm -hmm. famous kind of building. Yeah, and, gothic thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, gothic, and so. It was in the motive too of Chapman was just this kind of strange obsession that he had with John Lennon, right? And that's supposedly, but also, also one thing we can talk about Chapman, but also Lennon's very politically active, right? So he's always in the public, anti war, uh, vocal, uses his fame kind of for. Yeah, let's talk about that. Life. Yeah, you're right, William. I think people often just see John as they see him as lots of different things. Some people see him as Beetle John, rightly so. That was probably the way he did his best work, for sure. Uh, some people see him as the guy who's married to the crazy Japanese lady. Uh, some people see him as a, as a kind of hypocrite peace guy who lives in a mansion and tells everyone about world peace. John, John was lots of different things. But one thing he was that I think has been forgotten is he was a, a thorn in the side of, of, the, of the kind of warmongers of the day. Uh, and he was a big thorn in the side of Richard Nixon. Big, very vocal... Um, critic of the Vietnam War right from the start, even when he was in the Beatles, uh, right up until into the early 70s. And, and the, I think the mistake that John Lennon made was he made uh, his kind of um, his, how can I put it, his his battle with Nixon a personal one. And Nixon, Nixon wanted to immigrate him. There's lots of FBI files that have been released now that Nixon was asking the FBI to, to, to tell Lennon. And he was considered a problem. He was considered a a, a lefty, uh, anti-religious, anti-capitalism commie, basically, and he needs to be taken care of. Uh, not, not. There's obviously there's no documentation that says they wanted to take him out, but they they were aware he was a problem. And they were aware that he had to be monitored twenty four seven, and they were trying to get him, him, you know, kicked out of the country. So he had massive problems with the American Immigration Department, and this was all on Nixon's behest and J Edgar Hoover's behest at the FBI. So. Throughout this sort of early 70s, John has, it's well, it's, it's well documented now by John and the people around him, that he was tailed by men in black and there were phone taps and it was, it was a very paranoid time for him. But I think the, big, the first big mistake John did was he, when Nixon fell on his sword at Watergate, uh, John went to those hearings and he stood at the, he sat at the front with Yoko, basically enjoying Richard squirming. And Richard Nixon was a deeply paranoid uh, individual who I think had quite a dark side. And anyone who's listened to the Nixon tapes can uh, can find that out for themselves. You know, the guy the guy was, for me, borderline psychopath. 
um, at times. Obviously, he did some good stuff as well. You know, he wasn't obviously don't get to be president of the United States without having some good qualities. But I think he's, he wasn't a man that you cross. And John crossed him. And, and when John uh, did this, he, he was planning concerts all around Nixon's. Obviously, before Watergate, he thought Nixon was going to be running again. And he was planning concerts to go around when Nixon was campaigning and having concerts at the campaign's centers where Nixon was to, to, to you know do an anti-Nixon kind of concert drive, which is just, to me, that's kind of personal. And I don't think John should have gone that far, to be honest with you. I mean, Nixon was a, Nixon was a, a, a real dangerous enemy. But I, I've spoken to a lot of friends who, who knew John in the Beatles and in the solo years. And they all say the same thing, William. They all say he was very reckless. And he lived his life in a reckless fashion. He was kind of the ultimate rebel that he kind of came across as being. Um, and, and some people would say brave, some people would say fearless, but I, I think reckless is a better word, especially when you're yeah. dealing with people like Richard Nixon, who can call out the FBI and the CIA at, at the drop of a hat. Right. So he's a troublemaker. Know. He's the classic kind of anti-establishment troublemaker. You got it. You got it. I mean, I, I knew nothing about him, William. You know, as I say, before I heard that podcast in in the spring of 2020, I, I, I just thought, oh yeah, Beatles guy, yeah, married to a Japanese lady, yeah. Uh, I knew nothing about him, really. I, I wasn't a big fan. I, I was 14 when he died, uh, when he was assassinated. So, I, you know, in 1980, I was into Blondie and stuff. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't into John Lennon. It, the Beatles were 10 years gone. Uh, so for, for a 14-year-old, the guy meant nothing to me. Um, so I, I think that's kind of a, a quality I've had going into this investigation is that I don't bring any emotion to it. Uh, I, I kind of, because I'm not a Lennon obsessive, and boy, there's a lot of Lennon obsessives out there. Uh, I can kind of look at it logically and um, I, I don't get caught up in the emotion of the whole thing. I just want to, I see it as a case that needs solving. And and the, the main drive I had, William, was just to just to get the anomalies ironed out. You know, I, I really, it became an obsession to know what actually happened. Because if you ever watch, if you ever go back and watch any documentaries or read any articles or books about it, shamelessly, they're all different. <laughs> Every single, you know, you've got these Beatles scholars who are supposed to be, you know, they spend their whole life in this sort of study of, of Beatology. But yet they all say different things. They say sometimes the concierge was the doorman. Sometimes they say John was shot in the driveway. Sometimes they say he was shot in the lobby. Sometimes they say this. Sometimes it's, it's just none of it makes sense. So what I decided to do, William, my, my kind of next move once I discovered that anomalies needed ironing out was I, I kind of went back to the JFK kind of scenario where we discovered from the medical and the autopsy cover up, wouldn't say cover up, but the autopsy circus, let's call it that, where obviously they tried to take control of the autopsy and take control of the medical information that was coming out of Bethesda. Uh, they certainly weren't going to allow Dallas to uh, to do the autopsy, that's for sure. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll get, I'll get down to the medical side of it. So that the first person that I actually sort of reached out to, or the first group of people that I reached out to, were the doctors and nurses who um, who treated Lennon. So that that was that was my first kind of uh, strategy. And, and the first doctor I spoke to was a doctor called Frank Veteran, who spoke to me for about an hour about his experiences, allegedly trying to help save John Lennon's life. And Frank talked about John being shot all down his left side. Okay which he's done in various documentaries and articles. And that troubled me because obviously Mark Chapman said John was shot in the back. So uh, I, there was something off about Frank Veteran, William. Like, you know, you, you know, you talk to someone, it just didn't quite scan. He's put a video up online of 
himself talking to camera about his emotional experience trying to save John Lennon's life, which again smacked of for me a little bit of an ego thing, a little bit of theatre going on there. So I started to dig a bit further, and then I realised there was a doctor called Stephen Lynn who said that he also tried to help save John Lennon's life. And Stephen Lynn's the guy with glasses who always comes on documentaries and says he tried to pump John Lennon's heart. Uh, but then I realised that a doctor came out in 2011 who said that he was the doctor who actually pumped Lennon's heart, and it wasn't Lynn, and Lynn was just standing in the background. And this was a doctor called Dr Halloran, so I thought, I'll call Dr Halloran. He's the guy I think I want to talk to. I'll, I'll put Lynn to one side for now. And when I first spoke to Dr. Halloran, who's still working, I think he's probably retired now, but three years ago, he was still working. Um, and I said to him, um, the, the first question I wanted to ask him was, there was a, a, a film, William, called The Lennon Report. And it was basically about um, the Roosevelt Hospital, Hospital merry-go-round. It was a drama. And it was a drama that was done to try and get to the bottom of Stephen Lynn and all these different doctors and nurses who said they worked on Lennon. And they tried to get to the truth of what really happened in the Roosevelt when Lennon was brought in there mortally wounded uh, when he was shot on the 8th of December, 1980. Uh, so the first question I asked Dr. Halloran was, I said, Dr. Halloran, on, on that film, why, why wasn't um, uh, Frank Vetran featured in it? And he said, well, the reason Frank Vetran wasn't featured in that film is he wasn't there that night. He wasn't at the hospital. So his whole one hour discussion with me and his video that he put online is a complete fantasy. So that, that, that yeah, slightly, wow. that, tr that troubled me. Then we talked about, uh, and it was a good early lesson actually, William, that people, because John Lennon is so famous, people want their little 15 minutes and try and attach themselves to his death when they've really got no reason to attach themselves to his death. So then I asked him about Dr. Lin and he said, yeah, Dr. Lin lied for 30 years and said he was the doctor who tried to save John Lennon's life. Dr. Lin was the head of the ER. He was in the room later pretty much after they failed to save John Lennon's life. But he didn't didn't touch John, didn't didn't do anything to help and assist. So Halloran was the surgeon who was doing all the efforts to try and save John Lennon. But by the time John had got in there, Dr. Halloran said to me, he, he had no pulse, his eyes were dilated. He, he was basically dead on arrival. And it, everything they were trying to do for 35, 40 minutes was a kind of Hail Mary pass, really, by cutting open the side of his chest. Dr. Halloran did try and pump his heart with his hands. They, they tried everything, but ultimately, he had too many, you know, you know difficult, uh, strong um, wounds. So the next question I said to him, um, William, was the question that pretty much turned this whole thing around for me and made it become quite serious. I said to him, because at this point I'm still dabbling. I'm still a researcher who's just kind of dabbling. I've got no idea about a book or being put on some kind of mission to get the truth out. Uh, and I said to him, so tell me, Dr. Halloran, where was John Lennon shot on his back? And he said he wasn't shot in his back. Wow. And I went, okay, wh where was he shot? And I, I, I remember where I was when he said this. I, was, I remember exactly the moment thinking this is, this, is becoming, this is becoming quite big now. And he said he was shot just above his heart in a very tight professional grouping. Um, and it, it, whoever was going for him was probably going for his heart. Uh, though that, and amazingly, they actually missed his heart and they, they got just just above it in four four tight grouping shots. Right, four, so it's four a tight holes. group. That's classic like assassination stuff. Good tight shooter. You got yeah, it. Pro. Yeah. You, you got it, William. And three bullets came directly out of John's back in a direct line of fire. And one stayed in. The, the one that was nearest the shoulder stayed in. And what's important about that is the three coming out of the back, because there's four in the front and three out of the back, you were shot in the front. You, you, can't, you can't get that physics working for you if you want to say you were shot in the back. 
So, so he's I walking to, into the Dakota, right? As so he's, he's walking, walking into the Dakota, right, so, away right. from uh, away from Mark Chapman. I remember Mark Chapman to this very day has always said he shot. He thinks he shot John Lennon in the back four times. So, so I said to Doctor Allen, you do realize, don't you, that everyone says you know the official narrative is that John was shot in the back, and he said, yeah. He said I saw that. He said, but yeah, I just thought it was a bit of an anomaly. I just thought people have got that a bit wrong. He said, no, he was definitely shot in the front. Wow, it's uh, probably it's a, just like the JFK thing. They got all the ballistics and the public stories baloney. Yeah, you, know? you got it. And I said, where do you think the shooter was? He said the shooter was probably three, four feet away from him, standing directly in front of him. So when I said that Mark Chapman was 20, 25 feet away from John in a darkened driveway and John was walking the other way, we kind of we kind of threw it around a bit. And I said, what what I said, just 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 say John turned around and face Mark who was 20, 25 feet away in a darkened driveway. I said, could Mark, because remember, Dr. Hallen was a very experienced professional surgeon and doctor. He'd been working there for many years, seen multiple gunshot wounds and, and, and stabbings every night in New York. You know, New York in the 70s and the 80s was a very dangerous place. So he knew, he knew a gunshot wound. He knew how to assess a gunshot wound. And I said to Dr. Hallen, where, where was the shooter in your opinion? He said the shooter was about three, four feet away, standing directly in front of, of, of John Lennon. So when I told him about Chapman turning around from 20, 25 feet away, which he didn't do, by the way, and I can prove that. But let's just let's just go with it and say he did turn around. I said, how do you think that could work? He said, no, impossible. He said, it was, it, he said that, that, and I'll quote his words. It was a tight professional grouping, very important phrase. And in his opinion, and I quote, not even a Navy SEAL could pull off that tight grouping from that distance with a 0.38 revolver and he said remember it's it's a chamber william so you you know this is not an automatic weapon so there is a slight delay between each each shot so as he's firing away do you expect john to turn and face him and allow mark to hit him four times in a tight professional grouping without moving without dropping without cowering without i mean what, what they want us to believe william is he, he turned around and stood there dead still and allowed mark chapman to get off four shots uh that that really did some serious damage now let, let's talk about the damage now William. let's talk about the damage that was done one one of the bullets completely severed john's left um subclavian artery which is a major artery that goes into the aorta that controls pretty much all your left arm and left side so once that subclavian left artery was blown away and one bullet did this and even the official autopsy by a guy who i'll discuss in a minute elliot gross even they said yes the subclavian artery was was blown away um that 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 wound meant that john was pretty much immobilized down the left side so here's here's where things get ridiculous so whether you go with mark with the because the autopsy by the way william has slightly changed things the autopsy done by a disgraced medical chief chief medical officer elliot gross who's been accused multiple times of falsifying autopsies would you believe he's the guy that did john Lennon's autopsy wow. he says he said john got shot twice in the back and he got shot twice in the shoulder so he's kind of hedging his bets with the shoulder bit so they can kind of say john might have turned a little bit but i spoke to the nurses who actually uh treated john i'm going to talk about these nurses in a minute and they said to say that John was shot in the back and the, the left shoulder is grossly, I quote, grossly inaccurate because they saw the wounds as well. So we'll, I'll get into the nurses in a second. So just let's get back to the wounds. So let's, let's just say he shot in the back. Let's go with the official narrative. He shot in the back, but one of his subclavian arteries is completely blown away. OK, now all of the medical people who treated him, the doctor, Dr. Halloran, Dr. Lynn, who saw the wounds but didn't do anything. The two nurses who I'm about to talk to you about. 
Elliot Gross, the chief medical officer, even though he's disgraced, this is what he said as well. They all said the same thing. With those wounds, John Lennon would have dropped dead almost instantly. He had four big holes in his chest, four big holes, subclavering gone. A lot of major vessels around his heart were blown away as well. The guy couldn't breathe. He would have died almost instantly. There, there would have been no pain, no, no, no kind of, he didn't suffer. But this, William, is what the official narrative now wants us to believe. What the, because John was found in a, now you, you think if Mark Chapman was shooting him in a driveway and John's walking up to a vestibule door, he, John has to be found in the driveway, correct? By right. that vestibule door. Right, right. That's not where John was found. And I've spoken to the cops who found him, all the cops who found him. John was apparently found inside the, the Dakota. And what John had to do to get to the location where he was, let me tell you what he had to do. With these four big holes in his chest and his subclavian artery blown away, they want us to believe, and this is the official narrative, so they, we have to go with this because Chapman can only achieve it in the driveway. They want us to believe that John walked up to a vestibule door. He pulled open a vestibule door and walked into a little porch area. He then walked up six fairly steep steps, quite steep, and he goes through some mahogany doors, two big, quite heavy set mahogany doors. Now, let's be kind and say those doors were open. Though it was winter, they were probably shut. I know they were on a closer, but let's say they were open. So he's now in the lobby, okay? He's in the Dakota lobby. Over to his right is a door that allows him access to the apartments, okay, where they lived and various other people lived. To the, to the extreme left, William, you've got a swinging door, which is attached to a front desk, okay? The concierge's front desk, big, long marble desk. And behind that is an open plan concierge's front office. Now they want us to believe that John has gone through the vestibule, pulled out the vestibule door, gone up the stairs, gone through the mahogany doors. He's now, they want us to now believe he's gone through a swinging door on the left. He's now in the concierge's front office. He says to the concierge, Jay Hastings, I've been shot, I've been shot. He carries on running through the front office. It gets more crazy. He runs through the front office and they want us to believe that he ran into a back office, the superintendent's back office and collapsed. And when I say this to the nurses, they, they, they're shocked because they for, for, for basically until the Lennon report, until they started to get more details about the about the murder, they just assumed John was shot and found in the driveway. You know, they just assumed right. Chapman must have walked I think up that's to the him. Public, that's the public position, right? Shot Completely. down in the driveway. Everybody thinks that. Shot in the back. Yeah, uh, completely. Yeah. They just thought, I mean, and that's what they thought. They thought Chapman must have walked up to him. John must have faced Chapman and, and Chapman shot John very close to him in the front four times. And John shot, obviously collapsed instantly on the driveway. They were convinced of that. But no, the police found him, William. Here's the thing. Here's what's interesting. The, the, two, the two police officers who found him, or three police officers who, who saw his body, one went in called Peter Cullen and two officers, officers Palmer and Framberger then came and carried John out. But when they went into the back office, William, what they found was they found John Lennon face down splat out like that face down spread eagle now here's the thing what is what is john lennon doing face down it, with his face into into the floor we because the, the, here's here's where things get problematic we've got two people that were there with john we've got the concierge jay hastings and we've got yoko ono okay now according to jay hastings he says that he heard gunfire and then very shortly after that, John comes running past him in the front office and says, I've been shot, I've been shot twice now. Jay, is, he's added a bit of sauce to it. He thinks John said it to him twice. Runs into the back office and collapses. Now, Jay says that John collapsed on his left, on his left side, which kind of makes sense because John's left arm was broken, his femur was broken. 
And Jay says he walked up to John and he very gently pulled John's shoulder and pulled John onto his back. And he could see that John's chest was all bloody and covered in, you know, with holes. And he realized, oh my God, using my tie for a tourniquet is not going to work here. This guy's serious. And Jay says he ran out to call an ambulance. And at that point, Jay also says, as John came running in, a couple of seconds after John came running in, Yoko Ono came running in. So we know from another resident called Jack Henderson that Yoko Ono and Jay Hastings were in that location. So they're both there. And the question I want to ask myself is, and we'll get into Jay Hastings a little bit further on in the conversation. I want to, I want to roll back to the nurses in a minute, William. But the question I want to leave people just pondering before we get back to it is, why did Yoko Ono and Jay Hastings leave John Lennon flat down, face down? Because we know he's on his back. So how did he end up on his front? Now, John, John's dead. I said to Jay Hastings, what did you think was, he said, oh, there was a death gurgle. He said, I heard a death gurgle. He said, the guy died right there in front of me. There was no, because there's this myth that's built up, William, where one of the cops who took John in his car to the Roosevelt, a, a guy called Officer Moran, has come out with an absolute piece of BS over the years, which he's done on documentaries and said, oh yeah, I said to him, do you know who you are? And he said, yeah, I'm John Lennon. It's complete. Wow. You know, it's just someone just adding a piece of garbage to kind of get, again, like, like, Frank veteran, someone trying to get themselves a little bit of fame. So let me just quickly, before we get back to the scene, William, let's go back to, let's go back to the medical. So I said to Dr. Hannah, I said, is there anybody else, Dr. Hannah, who can confirm whether John had four front, three out the back? He said, yeah, talk to the nurses, talk to Barbara Camera and Diatra Sato, who both helped me try and save John Lennon that night. So I spoke to the two nurses, two wonderful women, two no-nonsense New York ladies who just speak it as they see it. And they just, they both said unequivocally, yep, he was shot four times, upper left chest, three out the back, direct line of fire. They know how to, they could tell the entrance wound, they could tell the exit wound. They said, yeah, probably someone standing just in front of him. And again, like Dr. Halloran, they're deeply troubled that people are saying that John went on this, pardon the pun, magical mystery tour after he got shot. They said, no, impossible. He, he was dead instantly with those wounds. So that this really troubles them. And, and when, when they sort of, when I tell them that there's witnesses that has Chapman by the sidewalk, he was seen by the sidewalk just before gunfire. He was seen in, on, on the sidewalk after gunfire. So we know right, where he just Chapman supposedly was. walked out and sit, sat down and started reading the book, right? Well, well, well here, here's, what, here's what we're supposed to believe. <clears throat> here's what we're told to believe is that Chapman, um, after he allegedly shot John in the back or thinks he shot John in the back, because what, what Mark said when he got back to the, um, to the police station for his first interview, which is the most important interview with him because so many nefarious people got into Mark Chapman's cell after that first night. So it's that first statement that's the most pure statement that we can take from Mark Chapman. And what you've got, William, is you've got a guy who's completely confused. He's basically saying, uh, I don't really know why I did it. Uh, I've got nothing against John Lennon. I've got nothing against the Beatles. Uh, there was a little part of me that wanted to do it, and there was a big part of me that didn't want to do it. And we had, I had this conflict inside of me. And as John walked past me, this little voice in my head said, do it, do it, do it, do it. I got the gun out and I shot him in the back, which we now know he didn't do. So what's happening is Mark is imagining something he's not doing, which is, and when you actually get to know Mark's background, which we probably won't have time to cover here on this show, but we probably will in the future, Mark had hypnotists and mind control doctors in his life from the age of 15 to 25 when he was arrested. He was completely, completely under the control of hypnotists who we know who they are. We know their names. 
and we know the doctors that were using brainwashing techniques on him. So this is all now going to come out. Mark Chapman's background is, is where you get the key of how Mark Chapman stands there that night thinking he's doing something he's not doing. Because I'm fairly convinced, William, that Mark Chapman was shooting blanks. And I'm fairly convinced that as he was shooting blanks, he was imagining he was killing John Lennon. But John Lennon heard gunfire behind him, panicked, no doubt, stooped down and ran towards the vestibule door. And I think when John Lennon got into that vestibule door and got into the stairway area, I think a second shooter walked up to John, which is a concealed, closed area. It's a bottleneck. John can't get out. He's stuck there and he can only go one way up those stairs. And I think the second shooter shot John, took him by surprise and took him with four bullets just above his heart. And I think John collapsed on that stairway and he was moved from that stairway into the back office. Now, as you, you know, you're a smart guy, William, you know, this, this now causes a bit of a problem with the concierge, Jay Hastings, who says that John went running past him and said, I'm shot. So we'll, we'll park Jay for now because there's other more troubling aspects to Jay Hastings, which is now beginning to come out in my book. Um, uh, so we'll go, we'll go back to, to Mark Chapman at the station. So Mark is saying, yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't know what I did. I, I kind of, I, 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 I'm confused, a very confused statement. You can, I've, I've got the whole statement. I put it in my, in my book because what I managed to do with him is I managed to get to know the lead detective on the case, Ron Hoffman, and I managed to get Ron's notebooks and paperwork from the case. So I've got the full investigation documentation wow. now, which, wow. which has been really helpful because that, what that allowed me to do, William, was it allowed me to get all the statements from everybody that have been often concealed. And I've put all the statements in the book. So everybody now can really piece together from all the different witnesses, what really happened. One right, thing I can four, say, your book is 400 pages. So there's a lot. Yeah, of, uh, yeah it's a lot. There, of, right? there's, yeah, I mean, here it is. I mean, this, this, this is for me, I'm proud of it. This is the Bible. If you want to know what really happened when John Lennon was assassinated, this book will, will tell you what you need to know. So, so just getting back to the, back, back to, um, to the nurses, cause this is another incredible story. So the reason why I'm certain the nurses know there was four in the front and three out the back, you might have some people saying, Okay, there was a lot of blood. They were panicking. Dr. Halloran's pumping his heart. There's a lot of pressure. It's a famous guy. You know, someone halfway through their effort, someone said, this is John Lennon, the Beatles. You can imagine the stress they're all under. Uh, so maybe they got it wrong. Maybe they thought four in the front, three out the back. But what, what they did was, I spoke to Diatra Sato, who's the first nurse that assisted Halloran. What they do, I'm sure most people know this. When someone comes in with gunshot wounds, they cull the clothes off with a pair of scissors. First thing they did, cull the clothes off a pair of scissors, and they roll him. They roll him to the front. Around to the back, so he's naked. They need to see where the bullet wounds are. You have to, you have to get those clothes off to see where he's been shot. So they see. So Dr. Haran Diatrasato can see. Yeah, three, three out the back, four in the front. So they got that sorted. They did their efforts to try and save him. They failed. But here's where it gets really interesting. So Diatrasato and Barbara Camera take John off to wash his body to get him prepared to go to the morgue. Okay, as as you should do to give the man some dignity. So Barbara starts washing John's body, as does Dee. Dee has to then go off to try and stave off because Dee was a, you know, it was her job to try and keep all the police and the, and the, and the kind of the hoo-ha around the, around the hospital, which was happening outside. So Barbara continues washing John. Dee was there, but Barbara's doing most of the washing. And while she's washing him, she gets another look. She can see, Barbara can see, four in the front, three out the back. No other bullets on John's body, none. Because the autopsy wants you to believe that John was shot in his lower left back. Absolute BS. The autopsy wants you to believe that John was shot in his shoulder. Absolute BS. Barbara could see it and Barbara is, you know, adamant. This is what she saw. So she shrouds John, okay? So Barbara and Dee shroud John, getting ready for the morgue. And here's where things get really creepy. 
you've got a guy, you've got a chief medical officer called Elliot Gross, who turns up totally out of the blue and says, I want to see the wounds. And they're like, well, who are you? He said, I'm the chief medical officer. I'm doing the autopsy in the morning. I want to see the wounds. I urgently want to see the wounds unwrap him. And they say, well, that's just, that's just rude. And it's, it's undignified. And you know, it's, it, it, you're going to get him in the morning. Why do you need to see the wounds now? In a few hours, you'll be able to do an autopsy. No, I must see the wounds right now. And he demanded, they had an argument for quite some time. He demanded they cut all John's shroud off. And they, he had, they had to sit John up, would you believe? Uh, I hate to say it, but he starts to bleed out again. Totally disrespectful to John. And Elliot Gross starts to walk around John's body, checking the four in the front, three out the back, saying nothing, just, um, just doing this, okay, and then leaves. And they, angrily, they have to wash him again. So they're getting another chance to see John's wounds up close, okay? And they shroud him again. Now, Elliot Gross is a podcast all in itself, but all you need to know at this point, William, is there's been multiple accusations of falsifying autopsies in Elliot Gross's career. I mean, multiple. I mean, the guy has what can only be described as a disgraced career. Incredibly, he always managed to get off. Uh, he had some kind of guardian angel, lots and lots of accusations, lots of kind of court, court proceedings, but he always got off and never actually got prosecuted for it. And he carried on working right up until, I'd say about 20 years ago, maybe 15 years wow. ago. Uh, so someone was looking out for Elliot Gross and Elliot Gross was the guy who was in position to do the autopsy on, um, on John Lennon. There were, actually a year before he got the job, Michael Baden was the chief medical officer for New York. Wow. And my, you know, Michael Baden from um, the, uh, the, the assassination hearings in the seventies. And Michael Baden was sacked by Ed Koch, Ed Koch's um, mayor office and he got an unfair dismissal. So somebody high up wanted to get Baden out of the way and wanted to get Gross in as 1980 rolled around because I think they might have known that they needed someone like Elliot Gross that they could work with when a famous autopsy had to be performed at the end of the year. I'm just speculating here, but I think you can see how this might have worked. So, so the nurses to this day are still furious that the world and Wikipedia and every documentary and every book is still saying that John Lennon was shot in the back. And they're furious about it because they, they can't quite understand why the world can't get the truth of it. And, and the, the Lennon report, that dramatic film I was telling you about, this is a fantastic story. The, the producer, it might, actually, no, it might be the writer, said to Barbara, they were discussing, you know, the wounds and stuff. And, and they, Barbara was reading the script and it said shot in the back. And Barbara said, no, he was shot in the front. You can't, you can't put this in here. Why, why are you putting in the back? We told you he was shot in the front. And the writer said, well, that's, that's what it said on Wikipedia. Wow. And, she, wow, and Barbara said, this is the great line, Barbara said, well, Wikipedia wasn't in the room that night when we were trying to save John Lennon. Right. So yeah, it's just a fantastic line. And, um, and so you've kind of, this is this, this autopsy medical uh, cover-up. Let's call it what it is, William. It's a cover-up. You know, the, the doctors and nurses have been kept in the shadows for a long, long time. And it's long overdue that people heard what they saw. And, and what they experienced because like jfk you can't be shot in the back from the front right. bullets bullets off. don't they don't boomerang so let, let's get down to the apologies let's get down to how people have tried to frame it so the authorities know this is a problem william right they know they know that the nurses have said this they're not stupid they, they know there's this kind of rumbling in the background that there's a doctor and nurses who said he was shot in the front so the, what the way they try to square this away is 
and they tried to square it away on the night of the murder, would you believe? You've got a guy, a chief of detectives called James Sullivan, who pulled a press conference. And he basically said to the, to the media, he said, yeah, uh, Mark Chapman called out to John Lennon. He called out John Lennon, right? Now, he doesn't actually specify that John turned around. But by seeding that lie, it kind of keeps it a bit cloudy. So you go, well, maybe John turned. And maybe a bullet hit him in the shoulder, maybe in the shoulder, maybe in his chest, maybe he turned back. So, you know, Mark, Mark calling out is really important. And right, but it, mix, sounds, it makes it sound like Chapman's there with Lennon, which may exactly. not even be the case, right? Exactly. So, so how do we know Mark Chapman didn't call out? Well, I'll tell you how we know. There's quite a few ways we don't know. First thing, Chapman's never said he did it. In 43 years, he's, he didn't even imagine he did that. So he's never, ever said, I called out to John Lennon. So that's really important. Chapman, he was imagining lots of different things, but he certainly wasn't imagining that. Now, I've got a statement from Yoko Ono, and this is really important because she is a key witness. She was there in that driveway moments before gunfire rang out. And she said in one of her statements, she's given four statements that I've got that have not been seen before. I put them all in my book. They all are, they're slightly worryingly all a little bit different, but you can kind of figure out roughly what, what happened and what she saw. You know, I wish it was more detailed, but it isn't. Um, and she said in one of her statements, we were walking in, we heard a slight noise in the road. We didn't turn around. She said it. We didn't turn around. Now, if Mark Chapman called out to her husband and she turned and John turned around and Mark Chapman shot her husband, you think Yoko Wano might have mentioned that. You think that might have actually come into her, you know, into her memory. And what's really interesting, William, about Yoko Ono is in 43 years, she has never said she saw Mark Chapman shoot her husband. Wow. Ever. Because she didn't see it. She did not see it. Where she was is a mystery. I think I've got a pretty good idea in my book. I've kind of figured out where she was, and I'll leave people to read my book to figure out what she did and where she was. But it, it's kind of, again, in a famous assassination like this, you should know where all the major players were. You should know exactly where she was. You should know where John was. You should know where Chapman was. You should know where the doorman was. And by the way, that doorman being a CIA operative, not true. Complete red herring. Um, that came about through a journalist called Jim Gaines who did a 1987 article. Because what's weird about the doorman, William, is his statement was hidden for 43 years. It was one of the few statements that they never released from the DA's office or the NYPD, which I always found really odd. Like, why are they concealing his statement? He was a doorman. He should have seen everything. I don't think he saw anything, by the way, uh, from what I've pieced together from other people. He saw very little. I think he went back to his gold booth, heard gunfire, came on the scene. It, it was all over at that point. But Jose Padermo, the doorman, started working there at Dakota in 1969. So you can't have a CIA major assassin working at the Dakota in 69, waiting 11 years to take out right. John Lennon. And I'll tell you why you can't, really. There's a rude super, you might. Some, some might want to wait that long. But in 1969, John wasn't even in the US. He was, he was living in, in, in England at the time. He only went to live in America in 71, and he only went, they only went to live in the Dakota in 73. So Dakota Jose started in 69. We know who his sons are. We pretty much know when he was born. He was born much later than Jose Sanginas, Op 40 guy. We know when he died. Uh, we, we pretty much know a lot about him now. So he's not that Dakota. He's not that Bay of Pigs guy. And what Jim Gaines, I think, did was in his 1987 article, he was being very mischievous. He said that Jose Padermo, and that was the first time he heard his name, by the way, William, which did, which was suspicious. They kept his name concealed for seven years. He said, Jose Padermo, the doorman, spoke to Mark Chapman about the JFK assassination. 
uh, and the Bay of Pigs. And Jose Padermo is an anti-Castro-Cuban. So everybody went, okay, anti-Castro-Cuban, Bay of Pigs, oh, this is interesting. And they start to do their research. And of course, there was a Bay of Pigs, Jose Sanginis Padermo, who was in Op 40, who was a very serious CIA assassin. And they went, ah, got to be the same guy. Oh, there's That's a CIA true. assassin. He's there. And the problem with that red herring is when you focus on the doorman being a CIA assassin, you're not focusing on where John was shot. You're not focusing on his wounds. You're not focusing on this magical mystery tour that you went to get in the back office. You're just focusing on this mythical Bay of Pigs CIA operative. And it was wrong. And it was, I think it was deliberately seeded to get the public to be distracted and focused on one particular individual who actually, in hindsight, I mean, Jose Perdomo is, is a very mysterious guy, William. I mean, he's, he's the actual Dakota Jose is a very mysterious guy and a suspicious guy. I'm not saying he's innocent totally, because if you had someone triggering Mark Chapman and putting in his mind that this sort of, you know, the command hallucination, do it, do it, do it. It could have been uh, Jose Paderma. He was there standing next to Chapman, or he was very close to him. I don't know where he was standing next to him. So if anyone's going to trigger Mark Chapman to go into some kind of hallucinate, uh, hallucinogenic kind of command and make him think he's doing something he's not doing, Jose was on site to do it. Now, let's talk about other things about Dakota Jose that's a bit suspicious while we're on him. Allegedly, Mark drops his gun. Some people say Jose shook it out of his hand. Mark's kind of changed his story over the years because remember, Mark Chapman has been visited by CIA hypnotists, and we'll get into that in a minute. Yeah, uh, yeah before and after the crime, right? Like exactly. Yeah, I mean, we, well, we don't. Yeah. Well, we don't know whether CIA hypnotists visit him before the crime. I, I do know hypnotists did work on him before oh, the crime, but we do know a CIA hypnotist called Milton Klein, who would you believe was in charge of one of the guys in charge of the Manchurian Candidate um, program for the CIA on MK Ultra. He was placed in March just, himself. Yeah, just to interrupt, I did a show called Mission Mind Control, and I right. did commentary, and Milton Klein is in there. So if people I mean, want to see who this character is, and he's basically saying, yeah, I think we could pull this off. We can we can hypno-program somebody, you know, through techniques. For sure. Yeah. For sure. I mean, that, that you know, you could not get a more nefarious MK Ultra, uh, you know, operative to be in March Chapman's cell. We'll get to how he got into his cell in a moment. But just, just getting back to Jose Padermo, what Jose does is when this gun's on the ground, Chapman's alleged gun is on the ground, Jose kicks it to the back of the driveway, okay? Which, again, is a good, good thing to know because if he did do that, Chapman's at the front of the driveway by the sidewalk, not near John where he was shot at the vestibule, just another little detail there. So Jose then goes and walks around the gun. And then another sort of uh, uh how can i put it character in the assassination pops up now a guy called joe manny who's a kind of porter basement crew sometimes uh doorman part-time doorman comes up joe manny and he hears gunfire in the basement comes up in a lift with two co-workers and i've got both their statements so joe's fairly safe and secure we know he did this because there's two other people corroborating it um and they all come up and joe sees this gun and Jose sort of stomping around it in an agitated state. He sees Chapman at the sidewalk reading Catcher in the Rye now. Chapman's got Catcher in the Rye out and he's reading that, which is a very bizarre thing to do. I think that was a, I think that was part of his programming to get the book out and and to just yeah, I think he was malfunctioning to be honest with you, but we can get into that a bit later as well. Interesting. Yeah, so so basically he comes up Joe Manny, sees the gun, Jose says take this down. Take get this take this gun away. Now here's a question. Why didn't Jose do that? Why didn't Jose pick it up and take it inside? Chapman's docile now. He's by the sidewalk reading the book. He, he's completely doing zero. Jose's a big guy, a bull of a guy. Why is he so paranoid about picking that gun up? Why does he need Joe Manny to pick it up and take it down? But that's what Joe does. He picks it up. He takes it down into the basement and sticks it in a drawer. 
So that's just bizarre. Then Joe Manny comes back up and he goes into the lobby area. And now this is where things get really interesting. Okay. The Joe Manny goes into the lobby area. So what he should see is he should see Yoko Ono, Jay Hastings, who, who we know were both there. And he says he did see both of them. So that's cool. And he, and he should see John's body. Okay. And he does see all of these things. And he sees John's body in the back office. He sees Jay there. He sees Yoko there. But Joe Manny sees two other very disturbing things, which up to this point has never been revealed. Joe Manny sees a pool of blood in the front office, okay, in an indentation in the marble floor, which he described. And Jay Hastings has told, told me separately that that indentation was in the marble floor in the front, in the front office. Okay, so we know that that there's a nice little bit of detail that Joe Manny puts in there. And he says it was a massive pool of blood that was in that indentation, okay? So Joe Manny sees the blood and he sees a couple of other things. He sees Jay, and I quote, covered, he uses in an Apple TV series just come out, he actually uses his arms covered in blood, his shirt covered in blood. He's also described it to me as full of blood, okay? Jay Hastings shirt, disturbing. Shouldn't be covered in blood, shouldn't be full of blood. John ran past him, he just moved him slightly over onto his back. Why is his shirt covered in blood? Deeply disturbing. I'll get to why Jay thinks his shirt was covered in blood in a moment. And he sees John in the back office with Yoko. Okay. So when I said to Joe Manny, I said, Joe, how do you think all this played out? Why was why was Jay Hastings' shirt covered in blood? Why was there why was there a pool of blood in the front office? Joe Manny says, Well, Jay told me that John fell into his arms. And I'm thinking, well, that's not what Jay's telling the world now. What Jay's telling the world now is that John ran right past him. So that doesn't scope. He said, well, that's what Jay told me on the night. And I said, Why do you, what do you think that pool of blood was doing in the front office? And he said, well, when I saw that and I saw John's blood body in the back office, Joe Manny said, well, I just assumed that Yoko and Jay panicked and were worried that Chapman might still come back with, you know, with a gun or more bullets. And they dragged his body into the back office to hide. That was Joe Manny's theory. So I said to Jay Hastings, I said, Jay, how did your shirt get covered in blood? I, I don't get it. And he said, well, he, and then he, he had to come up. He admitted that his shirt was covered in blood. So he wasn't denying that because other people saw it. So he said, um, my shirt was covered in blood, he said, because I helped the cops carry John's body out to a police car. Okay, now the two cops that he said he carried John's body out to a police car are, are Officer Fraunberger and Officer Palmer, okay? Now, these two are verified by lots of other people as the guys who went in the back office, saw John's body, and thought, okay, this guy allegedly had a pulse. I don't believe John did have a pulse. I think the nurses and all the medics said he was dead on the minute he was hit, so maybe they got that wrong. But they decided, Framberger and Palmer, to carry John's body out of the character, stick it in a police car. They were gonna stick it in their own car and drive off. Maybe they wanted a little bit of fame, perhaps. We don't know. But anyway, they, they carry John's body out, the two of them. Palmer takes the head and the shoulders. Fraunberger takes the legs. And they carry John's body out through the lobby, down the steps, through the vestibule, in the driveway. But they see their, their, their squad cars blocked in. Okay, So they see another police car that's free by the sidewalk, uh, uh, Officer Moran and Gamble's police car. And they say to Officer Moran, open your back door, take this guy to the Roosevelt and Palmer and Framberger put John's body into the back of Officer Moran's police car and Officer Moran speeds off and comes out of his lie later that John said he was John Lennon in the back of his car because 
everybody wants their 15 minutes. Now, interestingly, Mark Chapman at this point is in a police car, handcuffed in a police car. Two other officers have handcuffed Mark, stuck him in a squad car. And Mark went on Barbara Waters in 1992 and said, I remember two officers, just two officers, carrying John's body out. And the officer that was carrying John's head and shoulders swore at me. I, even though the window was shut, I could see he was shouting expletives at me as he walked past and I was scared of him. That officer, Officer Palmer, has confirmed to me that, yes, I did swear at Chapman as I carried John with Framberger to Moran's car. So that's a nice little bit of corroboration there. And other people, Joe Manny said just two cops carried John. We've had witnesses on the street that said cops carried John. So we're pretty much, we pretty much know that those two officers are the only two officers that carried John Lennon, okay? Here's the problem. Jay Hastings says he helped them. Jay Hastings says that he carried the head and shoulders. And because he was carrying the head and shoulders, the bloody business end, as he called it, that's how he got covered in blood. But we know that's not true. Wow. We know that's not true uh, because we've got lots of corroboration now that he didn't do that. Now, I'm not saying that Jay Hastings killed John Lennon or murdered John Lennon. I just want to put that out there right now. But there are a lot of questions that don't, that we need to ask Jay and that needs to be, that needs to be, um, you know, cleared up because at the moment what Jay's saying and everybody else is saying is not, is not jiving and, and they, it needs to, it needs to fit, you know, and the nurses, um, are the, I was just speaking to them just a couple of nights ago and we keep going over the one thing that haunts the nurses is, is this, how did John get from the driveway to that back office? Cause they said that's impossible. They said he couldn't, he couldn't have done it. They said they saw his wounds better than anyone on the planet, even better than Dr. Halloran. And they said, there's no way that guy with four big holes in his chest was going anywhere. Right. But somehow he got in that back office. And I think yeah. once, once we get all that uncovered, and I hope my book will, you know, get people to a good place where we can figure out what did go on. Because I think I've got a pretty good theory now. Once, you know, I'll put, I'll put all the pieces together. Right. Wasn't uh, Chapman hanging around the Dakota too? So maybe that there were other attempts to shoot Lennon. Uh, yes. Just yes, there was. The yes, there was. He, yeah, he came, he, he, he always called it a runaway train, um, William. He called it a compulsion. And this compulsion started in the summer of 1918. And basically two things fused together. You had the capturing the rye obsession that just suddenly arrived. He wasn't always obsessed with it as a child. That's a complete lie. All of his friends and family after the murder said, no, didn't never spoke about the book, wasn't interested in reading, he was into rock music. You know, that's just not true. So he became obsessed with that book in the summer of 1980, and he became obsessed with the phoning aspect of that book, i.e. Holden Caulfield calling people phonies, adults phonies. Which um, takes place in New and, York too, right? It takes Yeah, place exactly, there. exactly. And, and he also, there was a twin obsession with him. He also became obsessed about John Lennon at the same time. And what happened was whoever was messing with his mind I think they were fusing the phony Holden Caulfield character with the phony John Lennon. And they were fusing them together to, to make Mark believe that he was becoming Holden Caulfield and he needed to take out the phony John Lennon. And I think it was all done through hypnosis. We know certain hypnosis people were dealing with Mark. I mentioned their names in my book for the first time. And I think we, we've got to kind of, these people now need to be investigated in Hawaii. Cause I think when Mark was in Hawaii in 77 to 80, I think that's when his, hypnosis and his programming was put on steroids. And I think that's when, as a Manchurian candidate, I think he was getting primed and ready to go. And I think I think there was a whole group of them, William. I think it wasn't just, Mark was just unlucky that he was the guy that was chosen in the summer of 1980 to take on Project Lennon. I think there could have been any, it could have been Hinckley, it could have been anyone else. That, right, that was ready Hinkley, to... 
Hinckley goes after Reagan supposedly four months later, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and the similarities between Hinckley and Chapman are, are stark. So stark. what happens is there's two other things that are going on in the summer of 1980, William. John Lennon's back in the recording studio. Okay, so he's now, he's active again. He's come out of his hibernation. He's had his kid. He's talking about a world tour. He's talking about getting politically, politically active again. John is now becoming a bit of a threat again, a bit of a concern. And that, one other thing happened in the summer of 1980 as well. Ronald Reagan was pretty much a shoe in to win the election in November. So they, we know there's a Republican government coming in. We know a previous critic of the Republican administration before Carter is now getting back in into into a kind of public prominence. And I think that's when the decision was made. I'm not saying Reagan made the decision by any, by any, by any stretch, but I think there was a kind of there was a kind of how can I put it? A group of Republican sympathizers who just thought, you know what, we, we're not having that Nixon nonsense again. We're not having John going around doing anti-Reagan concerts when Ron's trying to get his Central America, uh, you know, uh, program off the ground. So I, I, I think I think a decision was made to take John out. I think it might also have been a dry run for what happened with Hinckley and, and Reagan in March, as you say, 1981, to just see if this MK Ultra technology is still working. And I think Mark was put on a program and he was put on a runaway train in the summer of 1982, get to a point where they tried for the first time, as you, as you mentioned earlier, alluded to earlier, William, he went there in late October, early November to, to try and take out John uh, on this compulsion. He didn't have bullets. He flew down to see a, a friend of his, a, a cop, a guy called Dana Reeves, to give him hollow bullets, which allegedly Dana gave him. Now, remember, hollow point bullets are not supposed to pass through a victim. So a bit strange that three of the bullets that went into John actually came out the other side. So they probably weren't hollow. Let's just get that little detail out there. But when he went back to New York in early November with his hollow point bullets, William, something went wrong. Some kind of programming went wrong. And there was a bit of a malfunction. And he decided to fly back to Hawaii and the mission was aborted. And he then, would you believe, put the gun and bullets in front of his wife, Gloria, a woman that he married a couple of years earlier. And said, Gloria, I went to New York to, uh, to try and kill John Lennon. I have this kind of compulsion to kill John Lennon. Gloria decided at that point not to call the cops. She decided, she decided not to get him some mental health uh, care. She just thought that was fine. And then uh, three weeks later, where I believe a lot more programming was done on Mark, I believe he went out there this time to get the job done. And whoever was actually controlling him made sure he did get the job done. And would you believe Gloria drove him to the airport and waved oh, him off? Crazy. Off you go. Wow. Off you go to New York, Mark. Really suspicious. Wasn't he involved in Worldview too, World Vision or whatever? Yeah, the, the, world, the World Vision thing is, a, again, another little bit of a red herring. He, um, he was working at Fort Chaffee in the mid-70s uh, with Vietnamese refugee kids under the auspice of the YMCA, who he was connected to. And he was there doing kind of like recreational stuff. World Vision were also at that camp, but World Vision were just there to uh, provide foster homes uh, for the Vietnamese refugees' kids. So they were basically placing kids in, in Christian homes that they that kind of, they had, they had a network. Yeah, that would be they, there the was no connection. That would be the tie between Chapman and Hinckley, because I think Hinckley's dad was involved in World Yeah, Hinckley's dad was involved in World Vision, but I don't, I don't think there is a tie there. I, I think people often say that World Vision was running that camp. The, the American government ran that camp, uh, and the American government, they made a lot of money out of that camp. Um, millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars out of that camp. There's, there's big, refugees are big business. Uh, Chapman was there under the auspice of the YMCA. World Vision were there to place kids in homes. There was no connection. And, you know, that, these refugee camps are very well you know, documented. You can read books about them and stuff. And I think what people did was they went, well, Vision, Port Chaffee, Chapman, uh, Hinckley's dad knows George Bush. George Bush is behind Mark Chapman. Not true. But it's an interesting little sidebar. But, yeah, it's, uh, 
it's not actually one worth considering when it comes to who's behind the murder. I, I, you know, George Bush was there. Don't get me wrong. He's in the background. He certainly, you know, he was Reagan's running. He was Megan's vice president, wasn't he? So, um, you know, George Bush was a CIA director in 77. So I think George Bush knew all the nefarious things that the, uh, that the CIA and Navy intelligence had when it came to MK Ultra and mind control. So you know, I, I don't think George would have been completely um, kept out of the dark of, of Project Lenin, as I'd like to call it. Um, but yeah, well, who I was think the, you... who Sorry, was the chief on. beneficiary of Reagan getting shot and almost dying, right? Exactly. 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 So I, I think I think when you I mean we we've just touched on a lot of very very sort of meta stuff here. There's a lot of minutiae in the in the case, William. That I hope my book will will lay out for everybody. It's 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 deeply disturbing. Um, it, it's it's kind of when you see that the, the path that Chapman was put on from 15 where he started to go to these charismatic hypnosis exorcisms which he found deeply disturbing i think that's when they were trying to crack his brain he was an lsd user at that time as well so i think they were fusing charismatic christianity and lsd use to kind of get mark to believe he was uh he was possessed by demons which is which is something that they used after the murder when they wanted to get off catching the rye you see the problem with catching the rye is catcher was a great device to get him programmed to go and do what he was doing to make him think he was killing the phony John Lennon. But once Hinckley tried to kill or tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan and they found a copy of Catcher in the Rye in Hinckley's hotel room, it was like, oh, this is two assassinations linked to that book. We need to get Mark Chapman off Catcher in the Rye. And the people like Milton Klein, who were placed in Chapman's cell, MK Ultra hypnotists, made it their absolute mission to get uh, Catcher in the Rye off the menu and what happened over the following years william is they morphed away from catcher into you're possessed by demons mark those old demons we talked about when you were 15 they're back again demons made you do it mark it wasn't catcher forget about catcher let's focus on you being possessed by demons and if you fight these demons and we and they gaslit him basically a group of very nefarious people who my book will will reveal gaslit mark chapman into believing that he was possessed by demons and the exorcisms that were done on him exorcisms some remote some with drugs some done would you believe by a prison guard would you believe that you've had a prison guard doing a side hustle in exorcisms i mean just disgusting how a prisoner can be treated like that and and, and you've got you've got mainstream journalists who talk about this in their books as if it's the most normal thing in the world that you know it's almost like they were doing mark a good service by making him believe he was possessed by um, demons but here's here's one other thing i'll just just to sort of finish off here william if if you're going to brainwash someone you need obviously great hypnotists and you need a lot of, you need a lot of time to crack a brain and to get them programmed, but you also need drugs. And you probably know this from your MK ultra research, a, a drug that they often used back in the day was Thorazine. Okay. Which is what, which was their kind of go-to drug beyond LSD, LSD 25. Thorazine was a great uh, way of controlling someone, making them docile, making them very pliable. Thorazine is a red drug, a red tablet, a very, very specific red tablet. And we know Thorazine was being used by the Castle Memorial people uh, in Hawaii when we had a, when Mark was going through some brainwashing um, uh, sessions, which I, which again I put in my book. But what's interesting, and this is something that was never shown at the time, William. I'll I'll, le I'll leave this 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 story to kind of show you how much of a cover up's been going on here. When Mark went off to shoot allegedly John Lennon that that morning on the eighth of December, nineteen eighty, at ten fifty that evening, he apparently did it. What's interesting is he left a hotel display. Okay in his hotel room and, and the DA's office and the NYPD always love telling people about Mark's weird display. He had a Bible and he had the Wizard of Oz picture and he had some photos and he had his passport 
and it was and it was just like it was like it was like here's me this is mark's telling the world who i am and they salaciously bring out this weird hotel display every documentary every but what they don't tell you because i've got the hotel inventory voucher records now from the investigation what they failed to tell the world is that mark had 120 unidentified pills in his hotel room and a third of those pills were red pills now those pills all, all those unidentified pills went off to a lab for analysis because i've got the docket where it says it's going off to a lab for analysis do you think we ever found out what that lab analysis came back with in fact we didn't even know up until me finding those documents wow. that those un unidentified drugs were in the mark's hotel room so you've got a clear cover-up there wow. by the nypd and the da's office that mark chapman had 120 120 unidentified pills in his hotel room on the day he went and allegedly shot john Lennon. it's a lot to take in william i've hit you with a lot of stuff here <laughs> that's amazing and i mean the truth is amazing it's just weird overlaps with all these people young 15 in the presence of a lot of hypnotists, Sirhan Sirhan, Hinckley, even Oswald. Oswald started at 15. Like he was, he was much more interesting, dead at 24. And these guys are all around that same age range. Yeah. Yeah. Very Mark, suspicious. Very suspicious. Mark, Mark kind of, I think, began. I think Mark was identified very young by some people that I, I identify. And I think Mark was taken through a program. I think he went to Le the Lebanon, of course. Very strange. Why did he go to Lebanon? He did a world tour which apparently the Castle Memorial funded. He went to every country around the world and Castle Memorial gave him a loan. He was a janitor, would you believe, at Castle Memorial when they gave him a loan to go and fly off all around the world. So, yeah, the, you know, the Mark Chapman story is just, it's always saying as, oh, just some crazy guy. He was into Catching the Rye. He was into the Beatles. He wanted fame and he killed John Lennon to be famous, which is, again, complete BS because we know it's BS because he, he did two TV interviews in 1992, which I believe he was coerced into doing and they were very rehearsed. He's never done a TV interview since. He does no books. He does no articles. He tells all media requests, which he gets on mass. Not interested. Don't want to do it. He did not do it for fame. And if you read the actual, if you go to my Substack, davidwhelan.substack.com, and if you read my uh, article on that statement that I managed to get from that first night, when he, when he gives it to in, at the police station, you can see William that this is a very confused man who has absolutely no idea what he did and ever since that night William, and i'll just finish with this a lot of people have said to mark what did john do when you, your bullets were hitting him what, what what was he staggering did he turn around did he cry did he and what happens is mark kind of goes like this he kind of he goes um um i i think he i think he went in i think he went in the building i i, I he must have gone in the building but he doesn't know he can't tell you because his bullets weren't hitting John. <laughs> it's just like Sirhan Sirhan. Like they've speculated Sirhan Sirhan didn't even have bullets. So the, I mean, that there were blanks. So you, probably much like Chapman. I mean, I've spoken to, yeah, I've spoken to Lisa Pease about this. Um, Lisa's been a great help. And, you know, we both agree it's the same playbook. You've got a same hypnotized playbook. Manchurian candidate with blanks. You've got a second shooter in position, waiting for the blanks to fire to, uh, you know, get everyone's attention focused on this guy shooting the blanks and then the real assassin with right. modified. You have no a real kill team and you have somebody managing Chapman. So you've got yeah. the same kind of thing. Somebody's getting him in place and making sure yeah. he's there. And then another, like the real hitman, three or two or three guys, somebody comes and shoots him, picks him up, dumps him. Away. Very believable. I mean, so it's an amazing story. Like when you start putting the pieces together of the American assassinations together, it gets even, it'll chill your bones. Like, uh, like yeah, wow. I mean, I, I put it in my book. I, I put in all the links. 
I, I can't help but put in the links with Siren Siren and, and yeah. you know, all, all, all the assassinations of the 60s. And there are links to Oswald, and there's obviously links to Hinckley and Reagan. There, there's a pattern here. I, I, yeah. think, I think now, interestingly, I think those kind of assassinations are over uh, because I think what they're doing now is they're just assassinating people's character. Uh, yeah, they get yeah, com yeah. they get them compromised, or they just use the no, press to... blackmail or something like that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm... it's more sophisticated. <laughs> oh man, now, you would believe like this. I'm not even a very big guy, but man, like they've gone after me in ways I never expected. I got I got called a Satanist, pedophile, all this stuff. I'm like, what? What the it hell happened? Is, yeah, what it happened going to Jim on? It happened to Jim Garrison. <laughs> It happened to Jim Garrison, didn't it? You know, Jim Garrison was an alleged homosexual. You know, I, you, you, you that, know that's it, what the, my I, I can tell you stories offline. Like I'm supposedly a repressed homosexual too. So that's yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, and, 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 and of course for Jim normal. back in those days, you know, it, that was illegal to be a homosexual. Yeah, no, they yeah. can't get you on homosexual. No, that's gone now. That 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 trick that trick in their book's gone. It's either you're a Satanist or a pedophile. Yeah. Or they try to get yeah. What was the other one that I heard? Of mm. one, or drug mm. drug addict or something. Yeah, like that. whatever they can do. I think that's that's the new mode. It's it's easier. It's it's cheaper and less cheaper, risky. Yeah. You don't have to worry about a Mark Chapman being dealt with. You know, because they had to really deal with Mark. When, when Mark, I don't think Mark was meant to be arrested. By the way, I think Mark was meant to run. Oh, I think uh, yeah. I think his programming. We we know the doorman urged him a few times to run, uh, and I believe he did that because there was a second team waiting to take Mark out, Jack Ruby style. Um, oh, I think Mark, Mark being arrested and sitting in that police cell confused was a big, big problem for the people, I think, behind the assassination. And they were desperate to get into his cell. And the first um, public defender who was treating Mark or was working with Mark uh, got some death threats. They got him out of the way pretty quick. And then another defender came in, a, pri a private defender called Jonathan Marks, a guy totally out of his depth, young guy, no trial law experience. He got the gig and he worked in 30, Rockefeller, 30 Rockefeller Plaza. And I'm not saying this guy's nefarious, but he then worked with a guy called David Suggs, who also worked in 30 Rockefeller Plaza. And David Suggs worked for a, a law firm called Donovan, Newton, Irvin and Leisure. And Donovan, Newton, Irvin and Leisure was uh, was set up and um, created by Wild Bill Donovan, the guy who actually created the oh, CIA. Wow, wow, and wow. Donovan, Newton, Irvin and Leisure was a law firm that actually was awash with spooks. And it even had, would you believe, William Colby used to work there, wow, the ex-Boston ex CIA. So that's how they got their CIA guys into Mark Chapman's cell. By, by, and I'm not saying David Suggs and John the Marks are, and, and Nefarious and did anything wrong. They may have just been used and they may have been told, we want you to put these guys in because they're great experts and they're hypnotists. But the fact that Jonathan Marks used Milton Klein the year before in 79 for another case as a hypnotist. And the fact that Milton Klein in that year, 79, went on a documentary for ABC and said, yeah, I'm, I'm MK Ultra. I can program someone to kill. I can't believe Jonathan Marks didn't know that. I can't believe he didn't know what Milton Klein was doing and what he'd done previously. So Jonathan Marks has got some serious questions to ask how he allowed a man like that, a disgusting, evil man like that into Mark Chapman's cell. And I think Milton Klein was put in there to erase whatever Mark Chapman thought he was doing or why he felt compelled to kill John Lennon. And there's very strong proof, and my book will prove it, that Milton Klein also was completely responsible for getting Mark Chapman to, to plead guilty two weeks before his trial. And of course, they had to get him to do that. Because if it went to trial, boy, oh boy, would there have been all the stuff that's in my book, all the stuff that's coming out now would have fireworks, come out in that yeah. trial. There would have been yeah, discovery. So all that stuff would have come out, right? And so it's Absolutely. the same thing with Sirhan Sirhan and Jack Ruby. They throw these trials. That's part of the whole program. Like they brought in for Jack Ruby, they brought in that guy 
Melvin Belli, who was like a torts attorney. He's like a civil rights, a civil lawsuit guy. Oh, you want to do a criminal case? Sure. So like these are all so sus, the process of. Uh, Absolutely. Of well, yeah, the truth's coming out, William. I, at the end of the day, it's, it, I think this book is going to cause a lot of ruction. I think a lot of people are going to be very, very upset about this book and they're going to be very, uh, I'll, I'll be very interested to see what happens because I, I've spent three years of my life, William, putting this book together. And I've got all the documentation now. They don't know what documentation I've got. They don't know. I've got more on these people than they think I know. And, I, and, I, and it's not all come out in the book. More of it's going to come later. And I just, I, I can't see now, once people have all the facts, how the official narrative can wash its face in public again. It can't. It doesn't make Everyone knows it won't make sense now. And things like how John got in that back office and things like who was behind Mark Chapman and things like why were those drugs covered up? All these things are now going to come home to roost if, if, and this is a big if, the mainstream media actually decide to tell the public about it. Because, you know, they're, 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 we've got this fantastic independent media now. Thank God. Thank God there's yeah. people like you, William, and, and Ed, and all the rest of it, and people I speak to, who are getting this message out to people. But ultimately, you know and I know, the normies need to be woken up with this kind of stuff. And, and a, lot of, a lot of the normies don't want to be woken up. I think we all know that as well. They're, they're quite happy being comfortable. Being it's the, it's but, the famous you know. story. You can't, you can't wake somebody up who's pretending to be asleep. You got it. You got it. But I hope I hope this breaks through. Uh, you know, I, I, anybody who gets the book or gets this information, all, all I stress to everybody listening and here, listening to this or watching this, please share this information. Please read my Substack. This is just the beginning. There's still there's still more. We, we, there's, there's more to come. This is just the start. There's there's other stuff that needs to be uncovered. There's, there's FBI files, there's CIA files, there's MI5, MI6 files on John Lennon that are still being kept hidden. A lot of files that John Wiener managed to get out from the FBI have been heavily redacted. Why are they redacted? He was a beetle, for God's sake. Why, 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 is, why are his files being redacted? What are you hiding? It's like the, it's like the JFK files. Of course it's nefarious. Of course he was taken out by, by, um, by, by, by you know, official channels and CIA and all the, whoever you want to. Of course, why would they why redact? Why withhold files if you've got nothing to hide? And it's the I same with Lennon. I think Sean, what the youngest, the son of Yoko and John is Sean Lennon, right? Is yeah, that's right? right. He that's came right. out and said, you have to be insane to think the government wasn't involved in the murder of my dad. I'll, I'll read it. I'll read okay. it. Pacific, pa, pac, um, pacifist revolutionaries are historically killed by the government. And anybody who thinks that Mark Chapman was just some guy who killed my dad for his personal interests is insane, I think, or very naive or hasn't thought about it clearly. So, so Sean, Sean in 98 came out with that statement. Julian, his son, his, his half-brother who John had with a, his first wife, Cynthia, advised caution to Sean after that and, and told Sean to retract it. And that's probably wise, I think, because, you know, the people who took out his dad could very easily take out Sean. And, um, you know, sure. and I think Sean is very wisely keeping his head down. Uh, I suspect Sean and his mum know a lot more than they're saying. Um, and I think that might be wise for them not to say it. Uh, so I'm not going to go, I'm not going to come down to heaven, Sean. I'm very impressed with Sean Lennon. He's a very impressive human being. He's, he's very wise. Like his dad, 
he's not he's not one of these guys who's pushed into one particular thought process he often you know has you know the left and right both hate him because he always comes out with conflicting uh thought processes that you know that each doctrine can't can't cope with and I, I like that he's an original thinker is what i'm trying to say in a very bad way and sean lennon's a very impressive guy uh, whether he gets behind this or not i don't know uh, you know i can imagine I certainly couldn't approach him with it because, you know, it's his dad. It's very personal. And, um, you know, I, I, I hope it's not too upsetting for him. But for me, I've got to be honest, William, when I started on it, I, I had no plans to do this. I had no plans to come up with some grand theory of second shooters and MK Ultra. I had no idea about any of it. I just, for some reason, William, I fell into it. And, and the more I discovered, the more I felt obliged to get it out. I, I, I couldn't sit on it. I, I had to. I had to tell the world about it and it's been difficult. You know, you know that you, I don't I admire you, William, because you do a lot of different subjects. It's hard, isn't it? In this dark yeah, world, oh, yeah. you, know, you kind of, you have to you know, have a thick skin and be tough and resilient. I think that's depressing. probably my most important defining personal characteristic. My personality is resiliency because yeah, you need I've it. You, it got, you mustn't let it get you. You can't let this stuff get you and, and yeah. you can't, you can't go to bed with it at night. You've got to be able to switch off, you know, because it's, it's dark. I try to switch it off. Yeah. When you're unraveling darkness, they need the yeah. people behind these things. They're very dark individuals. Horrible, horrible. People. You know, and and uh, it's it's they just scary. Do this to this this cultural figure who is really just out of sense of like righteousness, righteous anger, or being upset with the way things are, and pointing out these people are lunatics. And it's, I mean, that's that's the thing that breaks your heart is like he's an artist, like he's an artist with a loud mouth. We need those people. We need we poets. Do. We need people like that. And then they well, waste him in some operation like this in 1980. It's, it's terrible. It's, it's, it's disgusting. And where are the John Lennons today, William? Where are they? You know, maybe the lesson's been learned. You know, tell me a major pop star today. Where's your Taylor Swift, your Ed Sheeran's? Why aren't they standing up for stuff? Why aren't they putting their views on the line? You know, when they do, they retract them very quickly. You know, their publicists come down on them hard. Day. Or you can't go on that side. You can't go on that side. Retract, retract, stay beige, stay beige. And it's just kind of, it, it's just depressing. And, and it, you know, we've got this cancer culture now and everybody's terrified of, you know, saying the wrong thing. And anybody, it is terrifying. And there's a pile in and you can kind of understand it. But come on, guys, if you believe in something, stand up and say it. How, how, you know, John Lennon was, you know, he had many faults. He was not perfect. But what was great about John, he was totally willing to admit his faults. He said, yeah, I did this in the past. I did that in the past. I'm trying to be better. He, he constantly tried to better himself. He was a seeker. He was an original thinker, and I, I knew nothing about him when I started this process, but I, I greatly admire him now. He was a very brave man. I think he was a little bit too reckless. I think he should have been a bit more cautious with regards to who he was poking. Um, but at the end of the day, he was true to himself. You know, all right, you may have had a short life. He came he from nothing, you know? He came he from, like, a broken yeah. home and, like, just working-class guy, and I think he left, yeah. like, his... Sean never has to work his life. I think that the trust... I mean, they're... Just the creativity is, I mean, whoever wrote the music or the stuff he wrote is be there forever. You know, it's incredible. Yeah, he's, he's, he was a genius. I think he was. And, and he was an original thinker. We need more yeah. of him. We need a lot more of him, William. Well, let's leave it as we could be a good place to leave it. But we do need a, we, the world needs more John Lennons. And I think the Amen. world has been created now not to have another John Lennon. I think there are Amen. John Lennons out there, but they're, they're self-censoring in their own brain and they're tired and they're scared and they're terrified and they don't want to be canceled. And they don't want to be, they don't want to think the wrong thing. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit depressing really, but maybe, you know, if we don't forget John and his message, then there might be another one that might come through. Amen. Amen. Where's the best place for people to find mind games? 
Thank you, uh, William. If they go to Amazon, Amazon.com, Amazon.co.uk, any Amazon outlet will sell it today. Uh, we're doing individual different language versions of the, of the book in different territories next year on a territory by territory basis. I think we're going to go to South America first and Asia. Uh, so it will be coming out in, in, in bookshops as well next year uh, in traditional outlets in different different languages. We're doing an audio version next year. We're doing a ebook next year as well. So it, it's, it's, it's going to be hard to um, hard to ignore uh, by, by spring next year. Um, cool. With regards to a documentary, I was working on a documentary with some partners. We had, um, we had let's call it a uh, creative differences, let's, let's call it that. They weren't perhaps prepared to go as far as I was. Um, so I'm looking to still do a documentary next year on the book. I think now the book's out, I think a lot of producers are, well, I know they are, they're still interested in doing it with me. So I'm very hopeful there'll be a documentary next year, um, which I'll be you know behind and making sure is done properly. Um, and if you want to see my work, please go to davidweenan.substack.com. I've got a YouTube channel with Assassination of Lenin. You can see a lot of clips that relate to what we we're talking about today. Assassination of Lenin is also my Instagram. You can find a lot of uh, images and clips on there that will, will give you a bit, a bit of background to the assassination. And I'm on Twitter on uh, Twitter Lenin Murder. So come and um, come and follow me there. And and my message to everybody who reads the book and gets behind this is is please spread the word. We, we, the, the John Lennon assassination was one of the most missold but cleverly sold assassinations in history. And people are so ignorant of the murder. It's frightening. I listened to a podcast the other day. It's a mainstream podcast just about the murder. And, and it was an hour. And everything in that hour, literally everything they said for that whole hour was wrong. It was, it was, it was staggering. It just, it was, it, there must have been about 100 different things that were wrong. Uh, but they sat there happily quoting Wikipedia and, and they thought they were doing a great job. Um, and, and one of the reasons that I keep saying on my final kiss off here, but there was there was a, a DA called Kim Hogreff who said that Mark Chapman allegedly did it for fame. And Kim's the guy who seeded that line that we must never say Mark Chapman's name. Because if we say his name, we're giving him what he wants, which is, you know, fame. And by doing that, of course, by not saying his name and a lot of Beatles fans don't do this. They go, oh, I'll never say that guy's name. They don't then think about the murder because if you're not talking about the guy who allegedly did it you're not going to talk about the murder if you don't talk about the murder you're not going to uncover what really happened so it's a genius device to say you must never say his name because he's looking for fame because what that's done is is shut down all investigation into the murder so i urge people not to fall for that he was not looking for fame yeah these guys who put these shot uh, murders together are almost like Mach machiavellian genius sinister type i mean it's really incredible the kind of psychological techniques and propaganda they put together all in one operation and it's almost like a magic working or something like that it's weird because the magical workings they call it Karuli would call it an operation and then you have these intel guys almost doing the same thing but seeding ideas in people's minds propaganda that gets repeated repeated and over and solidified in the public consciousness very successfully I mean, very successfully yeah, yeah. Oh, it works. So there was only two guys who actually seeded the whole John Lennon myth, the assassination myth, for, for 43 years. You had a journalist called Jim Gaines, who did it uh, for the first 10 years. And then after that, you had a journalist, alleged journalist, called Jim Jones, uh, Jack Jones, sorry, who, uh, who has done it up to this very day. And those two guys have pretty much had a clear run to seed all the misinformation about John Lennon's assassination. But the one, two, the one thing Jack Jones and Jim Gaines never talk about, very tellingly, they never talk about specifics, about who shot who, where, and where John was, never mention that. And they never talk about the medical because they know if they do, 
their books and articles, if they go into those two places, they're in big trouble. So they talk about catching the rye right. and Mark being a bit weird and all that. They never go into specifics, but that, that, that they've had their time. That's over now. Now we're getting down to the details and the authorities need to open a new investigation to John Lynn's assassination. Of course, they never will. We know that. So we'll have to do it ourselves. The public will have to figure it out ourselves and we'll have to get to the truth because, again, this has to be the final thing I've got to say. Sorry, William, I keep saying I'm doing a, the final thing and I come out with something else. But John Lennon was obsessed with truth. That was one thing. He, he did a fantastic song called Give Me Some Truth. He was always looking for truth within himself and within the world that he was in. And it's, it's just so perverse that we have such misinformation and lies so much misinformation lies about his murder we need to get to the truth of his murder for john it's really scary because when you tie his murder with so many of these other events the consensus understanding of american post-world war ii history is all wrong it's all like it's almost like napoleon saying history is bunk like almost it's, it's the same same in britain same in britain william same in britain you know we, the, the history is controlled in britain completely that the, the, yeah. the, the origins of the origins of world war one are well worth investigating yeah and it uh, gets it gets deep like yeah. the effect on people's mind and their personality and mm. how much of your personality has been shaped by these propaganda that's coming through the tv it's very deep like the things yeah that, i mean has mk ultra has mk ultra gone gone to you know mass consumerism that it, it's just mk ultra been moved from from people like milton klein and their thorazine drugs to to the tv you know are we right. being mk ultra through right. programming there and, and well and think about all people taking uh you know uh psychiatric drugs like there may be for sure turned into for sure like that, so yeah i mean guys on opioids are they not they're not um, you put those poor souls who are addicted to these things they're not going to be out looking into john Lennon's murder they're, they're, no, they're, they're prozac, living prozac like, living their lives in in a haze oh, you know? man and so the best yeah. place, we've communicated on twitter so i'll put a link to your twitter feed if people have any follow-up questions or thank you interview William. you or something like that so people can reach out and yeah uh, great job you. i mean really well thank you're you. super well spoken and I look forward to getting the book. I'm going to buy a copy right now. Have it oh, very kind of you. It's very kind. And, and, and what, what, can we, let's let's book a let's book a um a, a future chat once you've read the book because I'd really like to hear your thoughts on it. That's great. Yeah, let's do it. Let's try to do it in January. Have a great Fantastic. holiday season and thanks so much for your time and congrats on the book. Really appreciate you it. You too. Thank, Thank you. And I really enjoyed it. Great. Excellent. And the whole full title of the book again is Mind Games: The Assassination of John Lennon, and the author is David Whelan, spelled W H E L A N. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, William. All the best. All right. All right. Stay there. Stay there. Okay.